0: According to Matthew. Then they brought him a demon possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if if it is by the Spirit of God I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom And now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they they. Go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This is how it will be with the wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother.
1: Friends, you have to pick. You have to pick. Are you going to read from the NIV? Or the ESV. You have to pick. That was a great illustration. You have to decide. Have you heard about the Civil War soldier who couldn't decide if he wanted to fight for the Union or the Confederacy? So he wore Confederate gray pants and a Union blue jacket to war. He was shot by both sides. Because you have to pick. You have to choose. Friends, you know that in war, in sports, in life, when you're on the field, there is no neutral. You have to choose. You have to pick a side. And that's actually the message of what Dick just read for us from Matthew's Gospel. Now, the astute amongst us will notice that we're going backwards. Last week when we were in the park for Labor Day weekend, we jumped ahead to Matthew 13 and we looked at the parable of the soils. Um, Because I felt like if we're going to deal with some of the more minute theological details that are in Matthew 12, it would be better to do it in this venue rather than with all the distraction of the park. So today we're jumping back into Matthew chapter 12. And what you've noticed or might have noticed about this passage is while it's 28 verses long, it starts with a miracle. The miracle in verse 22, the casting out of the demon out of this man, The miracle is one verse long. And the rest of it, 27 verses, is about the response of the people. So clearly the point of this passage is not about the miracle. You get one verse on that. It's about the response of the people to the miracle. 27 verses of response. And friends, what we see in these 27 verses is everybody is ticking aside. We find that there's three general reactions. To the miracle that Jesus performs in verse 22. Some side with Jesus. Some side against Jesus. And then there are some who claim they're neutral. That They're withholding judgment until they get another sign. Now friends, all of these people witnessed the exact same miracle. But it elicited in them some very different responses. Because Jesus is polarizing. Friends, Jesus is polarizing. And this miracle, what it exposes is the hearts of those who witness the miracle. The people respond to Jesus not based upon the miracle. People respond to Jesus based upon the condition of their hearts. And isn't that what we talked about last week when we looked at the parable of the soil? The, the, The seed took root And it wasn't about the seed. It wasn't a difference in the seed. It was the difference of the soil in which the seed fell. And friends, we find that people respond differently to Jesus, not because of the miracle itself, but because of the condition of their hearts. Some are drawn to Jesus. Some are repelled by Jesus. And others try to claim neutrality. But as we're going to see, friends, are they really neutral? Now, first we encounter those who side with Jesus in verse 23. It says, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now, Matthew uses this phrase, the son of David, 10 times, 10 times in his gospel. And in fact, the very first use of it is in the very first verse of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 1:1. the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So again, who exactly is this son of David? who Matthew is making out Jesus to be. Well, it's interesting because who the Son of David is is made clear in the very last use of the phrase Son of David in Matthew's Gospel. And that's found in Matthew 22, verse 42. Jesus asks, what do you think about the Messiah or the Christ? Whose Son is He? And they said to Him, the Son of David. Friends, the Son of David is the Messiah in Hebrew or the Christ in Greek. He's God's anointed one. He was prophesied through the ages. He was foretold by the prophets. He's the deliverer and the Savior of God's people. And seeing this miracle, some people's hearts are ready to respond. They immediately ask, is this Him? Is this the promised Messiah, the Son of David? Because their hearts are ready. And their hearts are ready to side with Jesus, so they're ready to receive Him as the Savior and trust Him as the Messiah. The problem is not all hearts are so ready. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but there's one verse given to them. And the rest, again, 26 verses for those who side against Jesus. So we have one verse of miracle, one verse of positive response, and all the rest of this narrative are people who stand in opposition to Jesus. And it begins in Matthew 12, verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, we've seen this name back in Matthew chapter 10, and we noted that Beelzebul means Lord of the house. And Jewish people often use the name Beelzebul when they were referring to Satan. So in today's language, you could say that the Pharisees were demonizing Jesus. They were saying that what he was doing was itself evil or it was animated, empowered by evil. And Jesus responds to this argument by pointing out just how ridiculous it is and how it's really just a thinly veiled attempt to discredit him. So he points out the obvious fallacy. He says, hey, a kingdom or a household that's divided against itself is not going to stand. He says, think about it. Think about it. If this power is truly from Satan, why would Satan use his own power against himself? And secondly, he points out, he says, you know, there are some members of your community Pharisees who themselves claim to be able to exercise demons. In fact, Jewish literature of the time that we find from outside of the Bible contains all kinds of stories about strange rituals that were used for trying to cast out demons. And so Jesus says, Hey, listen, if the only way to cast out a demon is by the power of Satan, then by what power do your own people cast out demons, huh? He points out this is just a thinly veiled attempt to discredit me. Because on their face, both of your your arguments are ridiculous. You just don't want to trust me. It's not my miracle. It's your heart. Because Jesus says, My miracles do reveal a power. But what kind of power is at work in casting out these demons? Jesus says, Hey, listen. Demons are fleeing not as a result of a civil war within Satan's household. It's because of the invasion of another kingdom against Satan's kingdom. Jesus says in verse 28, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, hey listen, if demons are fleeing, then a greater power must be driving them out. A greater power has come upon you. And what kingdom has power greater than the power of the kingdom of darkness? It must be that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And friends, that's the gospel. This is the good news. The kingdom of God is greater. And Jesus goes on to explain in verse 29, He says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And indeed, he may plunder his house. Now again, remember, Beelzebul means what? Lord of the house. And Jesus says, Hey, I've come to plunder the Lord of this house. And my power is so great that I can bind the Lord of this house. And now I'm going to plunder the captives from the Lord of this house. A greater power has come. A power that is powerful enough to bind and plunder the Lord of this house, the God of this world, and deliver people from His power. Church, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And the Apostle Paul celebrates this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of... Of His beloved Son. Friends, a greater kingdom has come. A greater power has come. A power that can bind the God of this world. And a power that is actively plundering His kingdom. Setting free captives. And bringing them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Friends, this is gospel. This is good news. Because the good news is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Satan greater than your sins. Jesus is greater than your addictions. Jesus is greater than your guilt and your shame. Jesus is greater than fear. Jesus proves Himself greater than death itself. The greater power of Christ has come to set you free and to deliver you into His kingdom. The question is, how will you respond? Because on the battlefields, on the sports field, and on the field of life, you have to pick a side. How will you respond? Jesus makes clear that there is no neutral in verse 30. He says, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutral. You have to pick a side. And in fact, this is the same point that Jesus is making in that strange parable in verses 43 through 45. The parable about that unclean spirit being driven out, yet the life is left empty and unoccupied. You see, the point of that parable is that there is no neutral. Friends, something is going to occupy and rule your life. Something is going to occupy and rule your life. Refusing the kingdom of God and the reign of Jesus doesn't leave you neutral, and it sure doesn't leave you free. It leaves you vulnerable. Hear that again. Refusing the kingdom of God doesn't leave you neutral, and it doesn't leave you free. It leaves you vulnerable to being ruled again by a dark kingdom. There is no neutral. You have to pick a side. Church, it's not enough to be set free by Jesus' power and then swept clean by His grace. The house of your life, having been cleaned out and put in order, now must be filled by Jesus Christ. You know, some of you might have heard the old proverb, idle idle hands are the devil's tools. Jesus says here, an empty life is the devil's invitation. Neutrality is impossible. Try to remain neutral and you're actually remaining vulnerable. Because it's only a matter of time before your life is again occupied by the Lord of the house. Friends, you must invite Jesus not just to clean the house, but to occupy the house. You must invite Him in not just as Savior, but as Lord. You must make more than a decision. You must become His disciple. There's no neutrality. You're either going to be filled with the kingdom of Christ or controlled by the kingdom of darkness. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. There's no neutral. You have to pick a side. So friends, who will you choose? And Jesus goes on in verses 31-32 through Make this somewhat confusing statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, And he claims that whatever this is, it's the one sin that can never be forgiven. And friends, generations of Christians have worried, might I have accidentally committed this unpardonable sin? And it begs the question, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? But even more troublingly, even more troublingly, it asks the question, Is there a sin so great that it can't be forgiven by Christ? Didn't we open our service singing that our sins they are many, but His mercy is more? Friends, have we met a sin that is greater than God's mercy? Have we met a sin that the blood of Christ cannot cover and forgive? If we believe that there's no sin so heinous, that the blood of Jesus can't forgive it, then how could Jesus say here that this sin, whatever it is, is an unforgivable sin? Well, let's consider what this sin is and we'll understand what he's saying. Now, to blasphemy means to speak irreverently or to show contempt for God. But why would blasphemy against the Holy Spirit be declared to be unforgivable? I'll let another theologian explain it because I think he does it concisely and well. N.T. Wright says, it isn't that God gets especially angry with this one sin in particular. It's rather that if you decide firmly that the doctor who's offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you'll never give your consent for the operation. Friends, the power of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can bring us to repentance. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can bring us to Jesus, the Great Physician. And if we unrelentingly and unrepentingly deny the only power that can bring us to the only place where we can receive the only healing that our soul needs, then there is no hope left for us. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time decision. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a direction. It's less a momentary choice, and it's more a persistent condition. It is to unrepentantly and continually slander, resist, and deny the work of the Holy Spirit. And friends, the Holy Spirit is the only one who can lead us to Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you resist the Holy Spirit's work, then there's no hope, because only the Spirit can change you. Only the Spirit can lead you to choose Me. This is why Jesus immediately follows this teaching about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit with the teaching about the tree being known by its fruit. Jesus says that we need the Spirit to change us. Why? So that we produce the good fruit of repentance. Look at verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Now friends, notice the language here. It doesn't say you need to do good. It actually says you need to be made good. We don't need our work. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to change the tree. Because only then will the fruit become good. Only then might we come to Christ. Friends, it's exactly like we sang this morning. This morning we sang, And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And then we sang later in that same song, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see that the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Only the Holy Spirit can make the tree good so that the fruit is good. Only the Holy Spirit's work can produce the good fruit of repentance and the good fruit of obedience. Jesus warns those who would say that the power of the Holy Spirit is the power of Satan and is evil, those who would resist the work of the Holy Spirit, no good can ever come from you because you will never come to Christ. Good fruit only comes from trees that have become good, that have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So to resist that power and unrepentantly, consistently resist that power is to remain unchanged and without hope. In verses 36 and 37, Jesus says that the fruit of repentance and obedience is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit changing you. Friends, understand verses 36 and 37 are not talking about earning salvation. They're talking about evidence of salvation. It's not talking about earning salvation, but the evidence of salvation. Jesus is saying, apples are the evidence by which you judge that it's an apple tree. And he says, good fruit is the evidence by which you judge that it's a good tree. The Holy Spirit is at work. Notice again, there's no neutrality. Jesus says, there's either good fruit or there's bad fruit. There's no neutrality. There's good trees and there's bad trees. There's no neutral. Friends, what fruit does your life evidence? Now some of the scribes and Pharisees, they persist and they go, well actually we're neutral. We're neutral, Jesus. Haven't, haven't made a decision. We're kind of holding out here, Jesus. Verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answer Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. You know, we're withholding judgment until we see yet another miracle. And friends, we've all encountered this kind of person, haven't we? You know, the person that goes, well, if God would only do this, then I'd believe Him. If Jesus would only do that, then, then I'd trust Him. I'm just waiting for one more miracle. One more sign. One more answer. Friends, it's not true. It's not true. It won't change them. No amount of miracles, evidences, or proofs will ever be enough to change the human heart. It's Jesus' point in verse 38-42. through 42. Jesus replies these miracle seekers going, no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Let's talking talk about the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now there's an obvious allusion here. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, and eventually Christ will spend three days in the tomb but that's actually not the point that Jesus is making what he's alluding to more importantly is the response of the people of Nineveh to the preaching of Jonah friends if you remember the Jonah the book of Jonah Jonah's preaching is lame he's like one of the worst preachers that we find in the bible Jonah 3 verse 4, Jonah began to go to the city going a day's journey. He calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's a sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's a lousy sermon. Although I can see some of you like how short that sermon was. That's a lousy sermon. There's no illustrations. There's no elaboration, no alliteration, no demonstration, no manifestations. It's utterly an unimpressive sermon. But friends, for as unimpressive as Jonah's sermon was, and for as bad as his attitude was when he delivered it, if you remember the story, it's impressive how the people of Nineveh responded to it. Jonah 3.5 And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Friends, the people of Nineveh impressively responded to Jonah's unimpressive sermon. And Jesus says to his hearers, how much greater and more elaborate has my teaching been to you? How many more signs and miracles have I shown you than Jonah showed the Ninevites? How much more have you seen and heard than they ever saw or heard? And the pagan Ninevites repented at the meager word of Jonah. But you people who claim to know God, you refuse to repent at my word and all of my signs. Jesus says the Ninevites, they had much less than you. But their response was far greater. And as such, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says the response of the Ninevites leaves you all exposed as having hard, stubborn, unyielding hearts. It's not that you haven't seen enough or heard enough, it's that you refuse to believe. You resist the Holy Spirit, and so you refuse to side with me. And then Jesus drives the point home, saying, Hey, listen, even the pagan queen of the south recognized divine wisdom and sought out King Solomon. Well, guess what? A wisdom even greater than Solomon has come, and you, who claim to know God, aren't coming to listen to me. How come the pagans get it and you don't get it? They had so much less and you have so much more and you refuse to respond. The problem is not me. You don't need another sign. You need a new heart. You don't need another sign. You need a new heart. Because those far less than you have responded far more than you have. Performing another miracle is not going to change your response. Throughout history, people have responded and something greater is come. And you are resisting the something greater that's come. Friends, the good news, the Gospel that we need to remember is that something greater has come. Jesus says here in this passage, a greater kingdom has come. He says in verse 41, something greater than Jonah has come. Verse 42, something greater than Solomon has come. A couple of weeks ago, we saw at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 12, verse 6, Something greater than the temple has come. The point is, He's saying, in the past, people responded to far less, but now something greater is here. So what keeps you from responding? Because something greater has come. Jesus says, if there's no response to the messenger, the problem is not the message. The problem is your heart. If there's no fruit... It's because the tree is bad. And if the tree is bad, it's because you're resisting the work of the one thing that can change you. You're resisting the work of the Holy Spirit who can change the tree so that you become good and produce good fruit. So don't pretend you're neutral. Don't claim to need more miracles to decide. Stop resisting the work of the Spirit because something greater has come. And friends, it leaves us asking, how will you respond Because neutral is not an option. You have to pick a side. And Jesus makes clear at the very last passage that this choice transcends all other choices and all other obligations. The little scene that we get in the end with Jesus' biological family at the end of the passage would have shocked people. In the first century Mediterranean world, a person's identity was their family. The family was the basis of social and economic life. And yet Jesus, at the end in verses 49 and 50, says, stretching out His hand towards His disciples, He says, Here are My mother and My brothers. For whoever does the will of My Father in Heaven is My brother and My sister and My mother. Now friends, Jesus is not diminishing the importance of biological family. God created and loves the family. He affirms the family. Other places in Scripture affirm that if we neglect our family responsibilities, We are as as poor as non-believers. We have an obligation to our biological families. However, Jesus claims that the family created by the blood of Jesus is thicker than the blood ties of biology. Our highest allegiance must always be to God's kingdom and to God's family and our hope and our prayer that our biological families might join us as part of that greater family. But Jesus' point is, there is no other obligation that is higher. Don't let any other obligation, family or otherwise, stop you from choosing me. Because you all must choose. You all must choose. Friends, you can't remain neutral. On the battlefield, on the sports field, on the field of life, there is no neutral. We have to pick a side. Are you resisting, mistrusting, maligning the Holy Spirit? The only one who can bring you to Christ? Friends, does the fruit of your life evidence the work of the Spirit? Is there the fruit of repentance? The fruit of obedience? Do they bear witness that the tree has been and is being changed? Do you claim to withhold judgment, proclaiming neutrality, while you're waiting another proof, another miracle, another answer? Friends, what are you really waiting for? Because there is nothing greater than Jesus Christ who has come. There's no neutral. We all must pick a side. And friends, who will you choose? Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You that Christ has come and He is greater. He exposes our our need. Our need is not for more signs. Our need is for new hearts. And He's come not just exposing our need, but He's come to forgive our need for He takes upon Himself our sin and our rebellion. He takes it to the cross and there pays for it and then gives us His Holy Spirit by which we might be transformed and saved. Oh, Father, move us. Move us not to resist the Spirit. Move us towards You. Move us towards repentance. Move us towards obedience. And, Father, move us now to Your table where we remember Your grace where we celebrate, where we receive, where we proclaim, and Father, where you might be glorified in Jesus name. Amen. If those who are going to serve communion today might come forward, we do come to the time of communion. As we read, In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes for us to explain what it is that we now celebrate. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Friends, those of you who have responded to the work of the Holy Spirit in repentance, those of you who have come to Jesus Christ confessing your sins, believing in your heart that God raised you from the dead and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, we invite you to come and to join us, whether you're a member, a regular attender, or just visiting with us. Come to the table. Remember Proclaim, celebrate, and receive as we remember Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. Dan, would you pray for the elements today? Let's pray.
0: Jesus, we come together in your name. We receive. What you initiated for us, this bread and this cup, we ask you to bless it, and we take it remembering what you did for us on the cross, and through the power of your resurrection, you did what we could not do. You satisfied the Father's wrath on our sin, and we thank you. We come together as your body, as your church, and we look forward to your return. We pray for your blessing on this church and all those gathered here. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Friends, we remember the Gospel, the good news. Jesus Christ has come. He didn't wait for us to draw near to Him. He clothed Himself in frail humanity. He didn't wait for us to cry out to Him. He let us hear His voice calling calling to us. And we're forever grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ. Do this in remembrance of Him. Scripture tells us that the same way after supper he took the cup. He said this cup is the new covenant. A covenant is a relationship. I'm establishing a relationship between God and humanity by the shedding of my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, do this in remembrance of Him. Communion proclaims for us that Christ has come, has died, has risen, and that He will come again. So we close our service singing, singing again, retelling the story of Christ and His coming, and anticipating that the Christ who's come will come again. Please stand and join us as we sing together. church Christ on His mission now sends. Go forth. Go forth with the good news that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Turn to Christ, for Christ is greater. Amen.